Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Um, this is a pretty special episode, right, Ashby? It is. We we desperately need something. What do we need? <laughs> I mean, well, I think like you know, people. A lot more people have been listening to our podcast since we started getting guests on. Um, and so I think in this episode, yeah. we've basically gone. Let's do three guests. That's right. And the first two guests are going to happen right off the bat here because they've both had birthdays and their dad agreed as part of their birthday present to put them on the Free Buddy podcast. I'm so excited. This is going to be our best episode ever. Should I bring them over? Oh, yeah. Please, 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 please. Henry and B, I've got two kids, Henry and Beatrix. Henry just turned 10. Whoa. And B's birthday is today. B and Henry, welcome to the Free Money Podcast. Hi. Hi. You guys are the stars of the show. What do you think of the Free Money Podcast? Well, I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Because like, dad does all this stuff about like, isn't it like, you talk about the coronavirus and... We do. Yeah. Finance. Stuff like that. We try to make finance fun. Have we we achieved this? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Partially. What do you think, B? I'm, I think I'm the same as Henry. Sweet. So, like, what, do you say, what would you guys say that your dad actually does for a living? <laughs> Thank you, Sloan. I, I, I mean, he works to make finance fun and works to make the world better. Basically, world the oh, world better. Yeah. That is that is like pretty on point. I think. Um, yeah. I appreciate that, guys. <laughs> Uh, I'll be I'll be giving you gifts later for saying that. <laughs> so Henry and B, um, happy birthday! You just both had these birthdays during the midst of the COVID. But while we've got you here, how different do you think your birthday was this year as compared to last year? Henry, why don't you start and then B? All right. Um, I think my birthday was bad and good. Okay. This year. I mean, the bad part was that it was during the coronavirus. I couldn't have a sleepover or any play dates on, you know, the past few weeks or actually, I think, months. Yeah, four months. So it's been really hard to, you know, keep in contact with the people I love and are friends with. Yeah. So that that's a problem. Um, but the good part is that I get lots and lots of iPad. Um, <laughs> I get to eat a lot of stuff I usually don't get to eat, like snacks, gummies, all this stuff. So it's a bit... So there's good and bad. There's good and bad, yeah. yeah. All right. Gummy bears are great. I totally agree with that. You like your birthday? Um, the bad thing about coronavirus is that you don't really get to see your friends, and if you do, you have to like set it up on FaceTime or Zoom or something. Oh, brutal! <laughs> yeah, is there anything good that's like different this year? Or well, one thing is that the coronavirus made us get a trampoline. Whoa! You got a trampoline? Legit? Who built it? <laughs> My, uh, you did? Yes. <laughs> My dad, Terry, and mom built it. It was insane. Awesome. And we almost, um, we've only had one near broken bomb, which yeah. was by you. Yeah. Me. 
<laughs> oh, wow. Jumping on the trampoline. Exactly. All right. It was made and it was built all up, but it was incorrectly built. Oh, awesome. man. <laughs> Uh, Ashley, you well, know guys, love you. happy birthday. We'll have you back on the podcast next year on your birthday again. Hopefully not in COVID. <laughs> okay. All right. Take happy care. Happy birthday. So that was the kiddos. Oh, my god! now officially been on the podcast. Oh, Very man. Fun. I'm jealous of your trampoline. That sounds pretty fun. <laughs> Dude, we, it took like 12 times to build it. They're serious projects. Yep. And it, uh, there's a wall going up the sides to prevent broken arms. But if your kid goes and bounces on it before you get the wall built, because he's so excited that the trampoline is almost done, if it happens to bounce off the edge of the trampoline, it almost break his arm. Kind of defeats the purpose of the wall. Anyway, it was insane. <laughs> Ready. He jumped on it. He fell off. We had to take him to the ER. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think um, I was reading on Reddit, there was like this thread about like, you know, what do people in your profession hate more than anything else? And one of the most upvoted comments was, I'm a pediatrician and we hate trampolines. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Um, yeah, oh. but, but I, I think Henry nailed the theme for the show, the bad news, good news. Yeah. Thing, you know, well, um, they, they, they nailed it. And uh, there is so much bad news. Yeah. But you know, it's like with these crises, you ob- you obviously have opportunities for remaking something or innovating, and and with all these bad things going on in the world, who knows? Maybe there are some new and interesting things. Maybe not a trampoline level of good, <laughs> but you know, we did have one episode with Todd Baruch where he was like, "This crisis is going to help us solve climate change." Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I mean, I think you know. Part of the part of the weirdness about like uh, the, you know the concept of uncertainty in economic dialogue is that like when have we ever had certainty? You know, uh, right. um, you know, like we had you know the clear you know there is no alternative narrative at one point to you know investing in risk assets. We had um, you know I remember very well going to a bunch of conferences called investing in a low return world. Uh, yeah, <laughs> remember that. I- that was like just before the returns went through the roof, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I like, you know, we should probably examine the notion that there, you know, there is ever some sort of certainty, but like it feels particularly whipsawy right now because like, and I don't know if this is just the bubble, right? Like I live in New York City, a quarter of New York City renters have not paid rent at all since March. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> which is insane. Like, I mean, like there's literally a quote from a federal agency that says, it would take something on the order of divine intervention to keep the situation from worsening. Um, you know, which is like, uh, you know, I mean, separation of church and state, we can talk about that, but it's, it's a heck of a quote. Um, you know, and, um, like, and then there's like the, the BCG or the, I think the census bureau actually, um, found that like across the country, 13% of renters had no confidence that they would pay their rent or, um, and only, and twenty percent have only slight confidence. Um, so that's roughly the same number. One in three, uh, you know, folks who you know have a rent payment coming up don't know how they're going to make it. Um, and then about half of people, according to BCG, like fifty eight percent of Gen Z millennials, forty six percent of baby boomers, um, are worried about their personal finances due to COVID. Like that's a pretty bleak picture. Yeah. No, I mean the fast. You know. 
some of the listeners might not know this, but I started a company five years ago called Long Game. Uh, co-founded it with Lindsay Holden, and she's CEO. Um, and the whole idea was to help people, you know, young people manage their finances. And and we've witnessed a lot of the money coming out of the you know the buffer accounts. We we provide buffer funds, basically personal sovereign wealth funds, you could can, can call it. Um, uh, and and money has been coming out, and that's the bad news. Um, we did see a huge uptick uptick around the stimulus. A lot of checks mm. getting in long game, which we perceive to be actually a, a good use of that, since we provide these buffer funds. But but the flip side of that negative story is the good story, which is a huge amount of engagement. So since COVID, we've seen thirty percent more games played in long game, which is kind of astounding because we were already a highly engaging app in the yeah. app store. You know, like the average user on long game is playing a game a day. Well, since COVID, maybe people are staring at their phones more, whatever it is, young people are finally engaging in their finances. And so while we have this like terrible data around ability to repay rent or pay mortgages, maybe it's going to trigger, you know, higher levels of financial literacy or greater levels of interest in their own financial future. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, like, I think uh, th- that's fascinating. Like, uh, the, I mean, definitely, there's some uh, weight to the thesis that people are sitting on the couch and thus they want to play, um, you know, the, yeah. the the fun sorts of games that uh, long game has. But yeah. the, I, but I think that really there is a lot of attention being paid to you know these like fundamental like how you're constructing your personal like life um, sort of questions. Like the I spent a bunch of time with a BCG report this morning. Um, that basically took the thesis that what's happened in China, um, you know, like China is experiencing what the rest of the world is experiencing two months earlier, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? You know, they're opening up the, you know, then the, so we can look to the Chinese consumer to tell us a little bit about what we might expect from the American consumer, from the European consumer. Um, and what they found, I mean, like this is a shock, right? People are trading up to buy more fresh and organic food, to buy more st- nice stuff for their households. Um, you know, and they, half of them say, I can't start, uh, wait to start traveling again. Uh, yeah. Which I I mean, I'm certainly in that camp. I mean, I, I very much miss, you know, I might, maybe I don't miss like trips through Salt Lake city on my way to Chicago, but I definitely miss (laughs) trips like, you know, um, or, or, or Melbourne where, you know, you're, experiencing like a lot of really interesting meetings and things that just you can't do uh over over zoom calls so yeah i'm with you yeah exactly i mean like i I think like uh so it's you know that's like you know that's hopeful right you know it's i mean i had been worried at the outset of this thing that people are just going to react to it by just basically being traumatized yeah um you know and shutting down um you know so but like with all these like kind of cross-cutting wins, I, like what's the macro narrative, you know? No, I agree. Like we can look at the world and we can see, you know, just in, in terms of like the birthdays I've had to like develop. Yeah. Like it's completely different than last year, right? They yep. didn't really... They didn't really well, and, and at the beginning of this, like I was like, holy crap, Ashby, you got a haircut. <laughs> I know. Oh, and by the way, I am oh, wearing... Yeah free money merch right now. I've got my new t-shirt, OMG GOP WTF. 
free money available at the Free Buddy Atelier. Yes, yeah, and a link of that, a link for that will of course be provided uh, in the episode description. I've and you know I've also got my uh, top quintile snapback right here. Exactly. Um, but, but I guess like, my, my point, aside from plugging our amazing atelier, <laughs> is, um, so much is different, right? Like my kids' birthdays are different. My experience working at Stanford is different. Like, yeah. And so, what does that mean for like the American consumer or the consumer in general? Like where yeah. are we sit and and how how are all these industries that rely on these consumers going to be affected? I, that's like the big question I think a lot of us are wondering about. And like for better or worse, when we say consumer, what we really mean is debtor. That's uh, right. Yeah, because sixty percent of Americans are in debt. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, exa- exactly. And like, you know, debt service payments are about five, six percent of uh, personal consumption expenditures, right? And like yeah. that that difference uh yeah you know it makes a huge it makes a huge difference in aggregate consumer spending so let's call someone let's call my friend let's call perry we're right right? who's the ceo of dvo1 which is an analytics platform they're basically the top data and analytics company around lending personal lending mortgage um they're doing it all DVO one's a great name too. Dollar value of basis point. Exactly. Hello, Perry. Hi, buddy. Hi. How hey. You Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, my friend. Thank you for uh, for picking up the phone. <laughs> it's it's great to be here. How are we doing? <laughs> We're doing good. So I was just, you know, we what we've been talking about for like the first ten minutes of the show here is like what what is happening to the American consumer and, and specifically debtor um, it, through the COVID. And really, we just wanted to give you a call because we've seen some of the amazing reports you've been putting out through DVO1. And also just the fact that your platform has unparalleled um, you know, access to, to the data. So Sloan, why don't you jump in and ask our first question and then we'll get Perry telling us all the wisdom. Yeah, yeah, we're hoping maybe you you would have some sort of a narrative for this. I mean, like we're, we're um, looking through this this sort of good news, bad news situation where like boosted unemployment, that six hundred dollar extra benefit that comes through the pandemic unemployment insurance program, and uh, you know the PPP loan program are both likely to run out at the end of this month. And I mean, just for starters, we're sort of curious like how much those programs have been supporting consumer debt payments and debt payments in general. Yeah, well, no one truly knows the answer to that. And that is the, I would say, multi-trillion dollar question, right? Um, uh, It's definitely playing a role because if if you had kind of, let's just say a year ago, described the scenario that we would encounter through COVID um, and then ask people what would happen to consumers and and how would they respond in in their loans... um, you'd have gotten some pretty draconian responses. And I think what we've seen has been surprising to everyone. But then when you step back and think about it, um, you know, it's not that surprising in the sense that you know, going into this, if you, if you kind of go back to March, you know, people are starting to get tax refunds there. Um, you know, then all of a sudden this happens, they're locked in their homes, they're not spending money on anything. Uh, they get a $1,200 check. And then even if they do lose their jobs, um, they're getting these unemployment benefits. Um, and 
you know, and people have kind of kept up with their payments for the most part. Yes, people have asked for modifications. And so, you know, what we particularly focus on um, where we've done a lot of our work is on consumer unsecured, which is probably the loan that people would have assumed going into this would be the first thing that people would stop paying. Um, and what we saw was we saw that impairments, what we de- describe as a combination of delinquencies and modifications, um, you know, peaked right around 15-ish percent. And most of that being from modifications, not really from delinquencies. And, you know, most of the modifications are payment deferrals. So, you know, skip this one month or skip two months or skip three months, you know, somewhere within that range. And what we've seen is so far, um, people who have taken those kind of payment deferrals, let's say, you know, on the one month cohort, over 60% of them are current again. Um, and over 40% of all modifications are paying again in current. Um, some of them have asked for, you know, they come off one mod bill, they'll ask for another extension and so forth. So, but you haven't seen delinquency spikes yet. Um, and that's what we're really, you know, waiting to see is, is, is how that plays out. And obviously the stimulus will have a, a huge factor to play in that. But you would have assumed that if you were a consumer and you were really scared that maybe you would start saving money and stop paying some of these loans um, sooner. I don't think people are just going into this totally blind and you know, saying, I'll, I'll just pay these till I run out of money. So it's no one really knows. And I think we're all waiting to see kind of like uh, for us, the first report that we'll try to put out or the first glimpse of it we'll have is probably the second week into August, because you know then we'll have one week in August when the the payments run out, the the stimulus benefits run out. But really, I think we'll have a better picture of this by the end of August, and then also, you know, if Congress comes together and they extend the benefits, then then altogether, I think this this could be avoided. So. One of the things that I heard you mention, consumer unsecured is kind of the one that you, you flagged as like the the one that we should all be kind of tracking. That's kind of the purview, um, as far as I know, and you can correct me, of the alternative lenders out there. Um, you know, these lenders that didn't really exist during the last financial crisis, um, you know, Prosper, Lending Club, Upgrade, all these new kind of... Um, what were once thought of as peer to peer, but but really weren't um, lending platforms. Do you see, you know, anything particular about the alternative lending space that may shake out as a result of this crisis? Given that they're the new players, I see a positive story for these these this wow. cohort coming out of this crisis, which is, you know, and, and Ashley, we've talked about this in the past. I mean, people were so skeptical of these originators, right? The idea of a consumer taking a loan out online with um, a company that's not their bank and no relationship to them, no loyalty to them. Um, I I think a lot of people in the capital markets crowd that were evaluating these loans for many years were just very skeptical of the borrower's commitment to paying that loan if if we descended upon some sort of economic uncertainty. They just figured people would walk away from these loans. Maybe there was a little cynicism held over from the financial crisis where people just walked away from mortgages and threw the keys back and so forth. But that was kind of the assumption that these guys were never really recession tested. And and I think the question was always kind of like the metric that we kind of keep in at TVO one in these reports that we're looking at to say, are we doing well? Are we doing poorly? Is really kind of uh, how, are, how are these impairments? Again, the delinquencies plus the modification rate compare like what percentage do we see of total impairments and how does that 
compared to unemployment. And so far, the un- impairments in online lending consumer have tracked below unemployment. And prior, you know, the expectation was it would be multiples of unemployment. So I think they're, you know, holding in fairly well. Um, again, now it could go off a cliff just based on the stimulus. But I, uh, one of the things that we talk about is that there's not like some psychological difference between these loans because they're taken out online by uh, a lending company that's not your bank where you just don't care about them and you walk away from that. So you're really, you know, they're being judged from a pure economic standpoint. Um, and, you know, the same way that you would judge credit cards, auto loans, or mortgages, right? It's not like you don't have the, the, this kind of a weird kind of a technical around who the originator is that might impair performance in a way that you can't really quantify from, from an economic standpoint. So I think that's a positive. So, you know, that's- one of the things that investors kept on saying is these guys have never been recession tested. Now they have. They've held up pretty well. They've held up in line with the rest of the market. It's actually... Shockingly, they've done better than non-QM mortgages. Uh, so, you know, we also track non-QM mortgages, and we've seen a lot of non-QM being stuff that doesn't qualify for Fannie Freddie, um, which is mostly going to self-employed borrowers uh, through, you know, alternative kind of documentation type. You know, not your traditional full doc employer verified loan, right? You know, this is alternative documentation using tax returns, bank statements, and, and so forth, and. Um, you know, we've seen impairments there go, go approach close to twenty percent plus. Wow, wow, that's fa- that's fascinating and great news for the asset class. I mean, like I definitely remember that cynicism super well. But you know, I'm I'm curious in terms of like moving for, away from the aggregate view and looking at like individual borrower characteristics. Um, have you seen anything significant emerge with like, for instance, uh, people who own their homes versus people who don't? Or um, any other kind of meaningful splits on any other characteristic? Yeah, there, there's been a few. I mean, one is that um, you know the originators and their grading systems—they're uh, doing a pretty good job, um, and and you could see that you know they are good predictors of risk for the most part. FICO is still probably one of the strongest predictors of risk, which you know after all these years of bashing FICO, um, it's held up pretty well. Um, Interestingly, what hasn't played a role is income. Um, and that was another thing that we looked at in terms of the, of the performance of these loans where people are talking about the stimulus check. Well, a lot of these, you know, when you look at some of these originators, the average income is above that threshold where you were getting, um, what was the threshold? Was it in the seventies or 80,000 in income a year where you're getting the $1,200 check? So, you know, the actual stimulus check probably wasn't a big driver of performance in this space because um, the average income was above that. But home ownership was a pretty good indicator of performance. Um, so, you know, what we've seen is that uh, impairment in homeowners was three times less than renters. Um, and they also, you know, when you go, when you look at where impairments peaked and then the recovery, so if anyone asked for a modification in, in, in the, that owned a home, they kind of recovered quickly and fell like 200 basis points, 250 plus basis points from the top uh, fairly quickly. And most of that, I mean, it makes sense when you step back and you think that if you own a home, you probably want to use this uh, this this moment in, in the rate drop to refinance your home. So the last thing you want to do is ding up your credit on a personal loan. Um, and so with the modifications, you know, they're not reporting them to the bureau. So you could afford to maybe skip a month or two, but then you don't want to actually go delinquent. 
So home ownership has definitely been a, a good indicator of performance. There's definitely been a variation there from renters. Fascinating. I'm just listening to you. I, I think the, um, the big question I have, which is a little bit off topic, is, is more before COVID, post-COVID lending activity. So um, I know that DVO1, it, it tracks all of the you know, unsecured consumer from alternative platforms, but you've also built a huge program around mortgages. I'm just curious... One of the big things we've been talking about on this podcast is like how COVID is going to change the financial services industry. Do you see the loans or the mortgages um, coming out of financial services as being different in any way post-COVID as compared to before? Well, um, so it's interesting. They're both affected in different ways. So I would say the... The thing about the consumer or personal loan space is it's extremely agile. So meaning, you know, these guys could shut off um, and turn back on very quickly. Uh, you know, there's not much machinery to, to get it up and running, right? It's really just about spending the money to acquire the customer. And then it's purely a lending decision. And then, you know, the loan closes in a number of days. It's really more about do you have the end buyer of the loan to, to fund it? Because most of these these uh, originators online are, are marketplaces for the most part. They're not really balance sheeting these loans like some of the brick and mortar guys are. So, you know, for those guys, it's a it's a function of performance and you know where is the market in terms of taking on that risk right now. Um, and I think there's not really a consensus. It hasn't totally shut off, but originations are down. You know, from where we were last year, you know, north of sixty percent. So it hasn't really turned on. And some of them, like, you know, I think Lending Club made it public. They, they you know, in April were down 90%, right? They were down to nothing. Um, and again, obviously, it's a riskier loan um, when, you, when you think about it. And it's not collateralized. So there's a little bit more risk. The mortgage world, it's a little bit of a different problem. So I think for the most part, um, what we've seen is that, you know, it was such a violent whiplash type injury to the mortgage market. Where it's basically it was like a hit and run. Um, you know, the car got hit. It's pretty much demolished. It needs a lot of work, but like you can't, you don't even know what hit you because everything repaired very quickly. So a lot of the mortgage market was funded from, you know, credit facilities from Wall Street that were marked to market, and there was crazy price action, and everyone kind of got margin called. Everyone shut off originations. Then once you shut off originations to get the whole machine warmed up again and ramped up and you start producing loans and you, you know, you get all the, there's, cause again, it's not like direct to consumer, like these online lenders, you're, you're, you have conduits, you're a mortgage aggregator, you're buying from countless different originators. You have, uh, guidelines with all of them. You have pricing sheets, but the pricing and the tolerance, the risk tolerance in the mortgage market there, it's just, there's no product. Um, and so all these like non QM originators are slowly ramping back up, but they, they got bruised. They lost a lot of capital. A lot of them were mortgage REITs that got crushed in the public markets, right? If you go look at most of the mortgage REITs, their stocks are still at like, you know, down 60%, um, from, from where they were. So there's a lot of market recovery. Well, at least from a pricing standpoint of where the bonds or the loans are traded, it's pretty much back, but the whole machinery to kind of ramp up originations again is not there. So, I mean, uh, that's actually bizarre to me that people are back to close to old guidelines. You would have thought things would tighten up, but 
it was just a very tough thing to, to solve for, right? It wasn't actually a credit problem with the product. It was just the whole market got broken. Is, is this narrative? I mean, like uh, that does, that's a crazy, fascinating, like kind of evaporation of liquidity for new originations of these products. I mean, um, it, I mean, is it really as simple as just, you know, um, folks are being stressed in, in other places and so money's gone elsewhere. Um, and you know, we sort of need to wait a couple months for this stuff to, to heat back up or, um, is there anything like if, I mean, uh, folks who listen to this tend to be sort of asset owners, does this sort of imply an opportunity for them, um, it, you know, in, in one space or another? Actually, you know, the, the, the sad thing is, and I think this is what's frustrating a lot of people is the answer is no. Um, you know, things were distressed for two weeks and so like you, you had this like two to three week distress period that destroyed the whole, you know, or uh, mortgage origination machine. Uh, and then left no real opportunities. So now you just have like an acid shortage with, you know, and then overlay the fact that the Fed pumped as much money into the system as they have. So like people are pretty desperate for assets with no supply. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's another bizarre feature of where we're at right now. And I think, you know, what that's gone is this has left pretty much everyone in, in the capital markets pretty burnt out. Like I talked to a lot of people in the mortgage world and it's just kind of like a, you know, frustrating experience because you, you're you're back to where you were almost a couple of years ago, where you're building up these programs again. And, you know, where we were in the mortgage market and the non-agency market in particular was, you know, there is a, a vibrant non-agency market finally um, that was going to probably pump out twenty plus billion in securitizations this year and maybe north of fifty billion next year. And then also now you just saw kind of some of the rule changes from the CFPB around um, the QM rule. And, and so forth, which would have been another positive uh, tailwind for the market. And then, you know, this whole thing happened and you had crazy whiplash in three weeks. A lot of things got broken. And, and now it's going to probably take toward, till the end of the year um, for things to get back to, you know, somewhat normal. I would say still probably uh, way less than where they were. But, uh, you know, but that's still positive because in the, in, the, in the scariest moments in the April, uh, you know, there was this potential where a lot of these originators are, you know, non-bank originators or their mortgage REITs that were accumulating these mortgages and then issuing the securitizations. Um, you know, a lot of these guys were, were on the brink of going out of business. So that didn't happen. And then people were like, you know, this is the second time this has happened to this market in 10 years. People are going to walk away from it. And, you know, that's not happening either. I mean, deals have been done where people finally cleared loans off of their balance sheets and, you know, pricing wasn't horrible. And I think pe- people are getting deals done, which is, you know, two months ago, you couldn't do anything. So it's, it's just been a crazy volatile roller coaster run. And I think it's frustrating for, for a lot of people involved. I bet. Definitely. I think the, the last question I have for you before we, we let you go is, you know, you, you built this company, DVO1. I'm, you know, I, I'm sure people don't necessarily know your background as well as I do, but you were, you know, um, a trader at Bear Stearns, and and you went off to build this this new company to bring data standards and kind of good governance to the wild west of lending, which was um, you know the the peer to peer lending space, but then the mortgage space. And I think the reason we really jived was this notion that like your type of platform could bring standards to this area that big long term investors could deploy capital in, and that kind of long-term capital flowing through into these assets is something that many of them want. They want these exposures, but they're just not getting. I'm curious if like 
you know, you've been building this company for five years. You, you've like kind of dominated the, the data space. Are you seeing the big long-term investors moving in finally, like we talked about in that diner four years ago in New York City? Yeah. Or is it, still, yeah. <laughs> is it still not happening? Well, I, I think, um, you know, for us, it's a tale of two markets. Uh, you know, consumer and online lending is where we started, and and that's where, you know, I think we're an integral part of the market infrastructure. Um, and I think, you know, for for us at DVO One, what's been really kind of awesome to watch is, you know, we, when we started the company, when I first spoke to you, I there was a, a big part of the pitch was not repeating what happened in the financial crisis, and you know, really being there for the market when we hit another type of crisis like that, and. You know, as we kept going another year, another year away from the financial crisis, you know, the it, sometimes it did feel like the pitch was falling on more deaf ears because people felt like it's impossible for something like that to happen again. And then this happened, and it happened in a matter of weeks, and and flipped the whole market upside down. What was really awesome for us is the response that we were able to put in place, and you know, within it, by the end of March, having performance data on what's going on in the consumer market, I think we played a big part in. Bringing transparency to that market and giving investors confidence in the asset class, and the more and that asset class itself had attracted some of those investors. I would still love more of your crowd to get into the mortgage market and the consumer market, and you know, and DV1 being a, a playing a role in getting them comfortable with with the data that's going to be available to them. So we've done, and it's amazing to see how how well and orderly this has all been in consumer. And again, so no one's like. Like no one's messing around with nonsense. They're thinking at a higher level about the macro, their macro view of what's going to happen to the consumer, and not like, well, I can't understand how it's playing out in any of these bonds or loans and so forth because I don't have the data. And like that's just not even part of the question. Now you go to the other side where we operate in the mortgage market, and it's a way more old school market. And you might even, I mean, common sense would say that. Those people should be more open to having us in because they dealt with the crisis before and it didn't go so well. Um, but, but that's where we hit some status quo. So, you know, whereas in online lending and consumer, TVO1 has almost 98% penetration, in non QM mortgages, we have 30 so far. Okay. And it's a newer effort for us. So we're just kind of earlier on that path. But, um, you know, there, I mean, we're uncovering so many reporting errors across trustees and servicers and Mods not being reported properly and so forth. And it's like still a mess to a degree. Um, and so, I mean, I, it's just like we're, we're making progress. And, it, and it's just amazing to me that actually the more mature market's the one that's more backwards in terms of its reporting. And, and it's just more, more status quo. But I think um, I, what we always say to all these guys is if you want the same investors that you've dealt with for the last 20 years, that's fine. It's just a smaller pool. But if you want to bring in bigger pools of capital, Transparency is a big part of that. I thought the consumer online lending guys did a great job of that by just saying, here's all the performance data to anyone that was interested. And it plays a big role in making people feel comfortable. These markets are still... Structured product still hasn't fully gotten rid of you know, the, the scarlet letter on its chest from the financial crisis by any means. So um, I think the data plays a big part of that. Are we fully there yet? No. Um, but I think we've really proved how efficient a market could operate with the consumer market, which you, you would have thought in this environment is the market people would be running away from, but it's actually been fairly orderly. Well, that's the good news. I, I, I mean, 
you know, so much of my life's work, as you know, is like around trying to bring tech and data into like the most antiquated conservative bureaucratic organizations. And so it's great to hear that when an industry is an upstart, it can leapfrog. And, and actually the data and technology powers kind of a next generation, you know, level of risk management, portfolio, knowledge, attribution of returns, and, and that you can get through crises. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah. it's making the case for all these other segments to kind of get their act together, hopefully. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that like we were, you know, the, the sort of bear case on these online loans was that, you know, the platforms wouldn't be able to keep up with these established lending standards. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's easy to, you know, you could come into our platform and look in, in consumer and understand what types of bonds were made, how long were their durations, what the repayment looks like. In the mortgage world, we're still spot checking whether or not a servicer, like you could find a loan it didn't make a payment, it's not delinquent, but there's no mod reported. And it's like, it's obvious something happened here. Like, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's crazy how there's still a lot of auditing and going on. And then you look at the trustee report and we know that number's wrong. And it's, you know, but it, it's just, and there's, a, there's a certain level of apathy when it comes to these markets that have been operating a, a certain way for so long. It's just no one, no one has that vested interest. So, Ashby, I mean, this is something that we bond over all the time. You know, this type of work and trying to get these institutions to change is not for the faint-hearted, right? It's just, it takes a, yeah. takes a lot of persistence. It takes a long time. And uh, eventually, you know, you start to build momentum and, um, and you get there. But I think this has been great and for us personally, just in, in, in terms of giving people a sense for what is possible. The reports that we put out, and they're on our, on our website at ddolon.co, um, you could see, I mean, this is... This is real-time transparency into consumer behavior. And that's not even something that's often possible in structured products because there's such reporting lags. But the, I, I really applaud the online lenders for how they change their reporting standards and, and the data that they made available to you know vendors like us. It's awesome, Perry. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us the, the details and sharing all the knowledge. So we'll let you go and uh, have a great Check weekend. back in in August. And we'll yeah, know how, how everything's coming along. Oh, yes. Looking forward to that. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Perry's great. You know, some more he, good news and some more bad news. I love it. Well, isn't it like, isn't it awesome? First of all, he, he's just one of the smartest people I know. And, and yeah. it's awesome to see the, the industries with the good data and the good tech in finance, kind of doing the leapfrog thing. And yep. for the listeners out there who would have thought that like the mortgages had good data or that the service providers and banks were doing a good job of like reporting on all the things associated with your mortgage, like it's still so dysfunctional, <laughs> you know? And people like Perry are trying to bring functionality to this dysfunction, but it's still really hard. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I was really surprised. I mean, like, this is a, you know, the ultimate anecdote. But like, when I bought my car, um, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll get a car loan. Let's see. You know, interest rates are low. Um, and it turns out they underwrite car loans based on the year of your car. Um, <laughs> so, like, yeah, like not based on your credit. It's based on like, you know. So, I bought like a 2007 Toyota, which you know they said meant that I needed to pay like 1,500 basis points in loans. Um, 
And so I went to an online platform and I got like, I got literally, uh, I mean, for the, I got like a weighted 2% for it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, this, is, this is all part of like the new world of alternative data and alternative credit and how we, how we score individuals and businesses and houses and, and it's like most of the financial services industry is operating in like a 40-year-old mindset when yep. like there's potential to just do things completely differently. And it's going to require like the kind of data architecture that Perry's building to give people a sense of like what's happening as a market. But once we have that, the hope is you can then you know, build all these new models for understanding the consumer, the lender, the borrower, and, uh, and build new pathways to... I don't know, help people get the capital they need. Yeah. I, it's also really interesting that FICO is still going strong. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, like my, my sister's boyfriend writes about credit card points and how you can do cool things with them. So they just got a new kitten and named it FICO. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was kind of like, I, I don't know. I mean, like maybe FICO will get disrupted, but I'm glad to see that, you know, the kit, at least for the life of the kitten, FICO will be around. Yeah. Well, good news, bad news, good news. Those alternative lending platforms, maybe they're not so alternative after all. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, with all that said, oh, it is time for Dear Ashby. Boop, 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 boop. I love that thing. Uh, yeah, this is the segment, uh, beloved listener, where we ask questions of Dr. Ashby Monk. If you would like to ask one, just slide into our DMs or our emails, or if you don't have any of that handy, just email freemoneypod at gmail.com um, and we'll read your questions and then ask them. Isn't that cool? I think so. I think um, it's cool. Right? Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, just while we're doing show business also, hey, please leave us a review. That'd be nice too. Um, but without further ado, wow, I'm really on a rhyming. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that's how you know we don't write the show beforehand. <laughs> would have never looked at that series of rhymes and been like, no, that's going to work. Oh, yeah. That's going to really flow. Like People, people <laughs> love that. Uh, <laughs> so the first question is, as yields fall, there's a growing din of discussion about swapping bonds for cash. Like, So you know, a lot of time, investment portfolios are 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Yeah. Um, and folks are saying, like, hey, what are we doing with these 40% bonds? Let's trade them out for cash. The um, uh, questioner asks, is this bonkers? Uh, it can get you fired. <laughs> Working a pension plan, it can get you fired, not because it's a bad idea, but because it means breaking from your peer group. Yeah. So I don't think it's a bonkers idea from a pure investment perspective. You know, I don't see an upside in bonds right now. I don't know where they go from here. So moving into cash, which seems like it is immune to inflation, like whatever we do to the money supply we'll just like print money and it just doesn't seem to affect consumer price index yeah um i saw like a, a really funny tweet the other day that was like one of those those memes where it was uh the orange county chopper father and son <laughs> yelling at each other back and forth about inflation and, and it was so funny because they were talking about how inflation isn't showing up in CPI because we have this globalized world. So TVs are continuing to have like the, the price level come down. But if you look at financial assets, property, 
or education, that's where you're going to find huge amounts of inflation as these assets get bid up. And so maybe, maybe we are seeing inflation happening there, but it's not happening in cash. And so maybe cash is a great place to be. It's not a long-term investment strategy, but mm-hmm. if you're looking at fixed income or cash and you're trying to understand like, what are my options? At least cash gives you liquidity, perfect liquidity that you can then put to work in something else. So it's not bonkers. It's, it would be painful to explain to your board why your performance was deviating so much from the peer group. So, you know, maybe for individuals it's fine, but I want, I don't expect to see a bunch of uh, pension funds or sovereign funds doing it anytime soon. They'd have to change entire benchmarks and, and mandates. Just to be clear for the listeners who are not huge nerds, um, the reason that one would want to do this is uh, that the uh, the price of a bond tends to fall as interest rates rise, right? So interest rates now are at near historic lows, the assumption being that they might at some point revert to where they were. So um, yeah. were they to do that, you know, and you're holding cash, you would continue to have assets worth exactly what, you know, you had, like you'd have all this pile of cash. Whereas if you had a bond... You know, you might lose like ten percent of the value for every one percent rise in interest rates, or so. And if um, you're holding cash, and all of a sudden inflation does hit, and you're worried, the move is to raise interest rates, which then crushes your bond prices. <laughs> right. So, so you may as well just hold cash, even if even if you're worried about inflation. That's a good point. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, like, hey, I'm selling all my stuff. I'm putting my cash in a mattress. That's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's the play. Um, this next question is interesting. It's a guy, it's a, you know, that I, I think you must have a reputation for being in on some gossip, Ashby. Oh. Uh, so, um, have you heard anything new about the U S setting up a sovereign wealth fund? There's some mm-hmm. discussion on the internets and I haven't seen this discussion actually, um, that such a fund could be used to address inequality. Um, I love this question because it blows people's minds in ways that they didn't expect. Here's the first mind blow. The first sovereign fund in the world was set up in the U.S. of A. in 1845. Okay, it was in Texas, uh, and I think it was called the Texas Permanent School Fund. Um, and as a country, we already have more sovereign funds than any other country in the world. At last count, we have 11. That's nuts. Uh, we call them permanent funds. Yeah. There's two in Texas, Alabama, New Mexico, Wyoming, North Dakota, uh, Utah, Oregon, Louisiana, Montana. I might be forgetting one. Um, but like those organizations were set up by states to manage either, you know, subsoil assets or, uh, or something, right? The, the $2 fund that was established in 1845 in Texas I think it was like a federal grant to Texas as we were actually gobbling up Texas. Um, not the question that this person is asking, which I think is a great question, which is like, could we have a national fund? And could that national fund address inequality? And then once again, here's mind blowing, like number two, um, we do. It's called the Social Security Trust Fund. It has $2.6 trillion. And in theory, it exists to reduce inequality because it pays everybody an old age pension. Now, 
it is um, suboptimal in the sense that all $2.6 trillion are invested in U.S. treasuries rather than... Not recommended. Well, well, (laughs) we just got talking about how you'd rather have your money in cash than than government bonds. Um, But so it's not quite, I think, again, what this person is talking about. I think what this person is saying is, could we take the Social Security Trust Fund diversify the investment portfolio away from treasuries into other things? And could those diversified investment strategies be deployed domestically to alter inequality? And I've heard rumblings, uh, but I've heard rumblings for 15 years. So this isn't the first set of rumbles. The rumbles will become more pronounced um, under a Biden administration than they will be under a Trump administration. So that that's kind of an exciting prospect of having a Biden administration. Um, but like we've seen in other countries that these sovereign funds, if they're permitted to invest domestically, you know, they can do pretty interesting things, you know, in terms of catalyzing new industries. Um, I've written a whole series of papers on sovereign development funds that have the purpose of investing domestically to alter the mix of industries that the country relies on. Usually it's in a case where a country is totally reliant on, you know, fossil fuel or hydrocarbon based industries. And so they want to invest in new green industries. Um, And so they have a whole series of mechanisms to do that. The, The short answer is it's possible. And I hear rumblings. The longer answer is, you know, it would, it would be pretty, um, challenging to pull it off politically, but we can do if we could do it politically, we could definitely do it. There's enough cases out there that like we know how to design that vehicle and get it to achieve a rate of return that's sufficient and <clears throat> invest in domestic industries. Like we wouldn't even have to like build it from scratch. Like there's blueprints that we could pull from. Yeah. So it wouldn't be like a technical problem, it would be a getting off the couch problem. Yeah, yeah, like getting Congress to agree that we need to diversify this. Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing that's just... I actually don't know enough to say, like, could it be an executive order? Could it be a change in regulation? Or do we need legislation? Mm. It's like those are different orders of difficulty. Yep, yep. But yeah, I mean, that would be... I mean. That'd be a pretty crazy executive order. Let's sell two point six trillion dollars of treasury. Why don't we just start with point six trillion? Yeah, I mean, still, that's that's a lot of treasury bonds. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, yeah, but hey, I mean, we can hope. Um, you know, I mean, just to remind the listener that it's usually sixty percent equities or you know other kind of equity risk assets and forty percent bonds, not one hundred percent bonds. Yeah. Um, well, we, I mean, the, the critique is we use the Social Security Trust Fund to, you know, finance domestic programs through the yeah. U.S. Treasury. So, yeah, to like plug a hole in the budget. Exactly. And, and so even there, this may be the mind-blowing moment number three. Maybe it is actually by, by <laughs> providing capital to the budget. <laughs> maybe it is already reducing inequality by providing public assistance in some way, shape, or form. Full <laughs> galaxy brain on me. <laughs> yeah, it's like three moments of sheer explosion. Whoa! I mean, that is that's pretty crazy. I uh, I never thought about it that way. Uh, I'm, I'm just getting out of the segment. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, this last one, I mean, someone seems a little bit cynical. Of all hmm. the sports that don't seem to be coming back, which do you miss the least? <laughs> oh, this is like just trying to get me in trouble with certain cohorts of listeners, you know? Like imagine as a Canadian, if I said hockey, somewhere, oh, yeah. somewhere in my mind, I was like, I don't really miss the hockey, but I can't say that because <laughs> all my Canadian friends would just crap on me. Um, and so I'm not going to say hockey. I, I think uh, for me, I just think like the fight club that is MMA, you know, there was that whole fight club Island that got canceled. Um, for me, it's like just watching people pummel each other is already like too gladiatorial, but having to like talk to my kids about like the insane beatdowns that are like showing up, um, on, you know, the sports channel or whatever, it's, it's too perverse for me. So I I don't miss that. You know, I, I think it doesn't, to me, it doesn't have like the history of boxing or karate or, or, you know, it's, it, it looks and feels egregious, like just dudes beating each other. And literally blood sport. It's a blood, like, you know, it ends when somebody's bleeding too much. (laughs) And so there, there's the part of me that's like, gosh, I'm glad I don't have to like constantly switch the channel when that's on. Um, which I found myself doing with two little kids a lot. Yeah. And and also like, I wonder, you know, these young people that get pulled into that, uh, if they're going to be harmed, like, you know, we, we all know football players suffer later in life and boxers suffer later in life. And like those people are wearing helmets in one case and gloves in the other. And you know, the MMA guys are just beating each other's ass with knees and fists and feet. and you know, so there you go. What, what about you? What, what about you? <laughs> so I, I'll flip this on its head. I, so the, the best news out of COVID for me in the sports arena is that ESPN has been actually launching the Ocho, um, which <laughs> I don't know if you remember from Zoolander's, like the sort of like, you know, s- specific home for obscure sports. Uh, yeah. But they've actually been doing that. Um, oh, they have? Yeah. And so like, I think if you, I mean, I don't have cable. Um, you know, but I've heard reports that if you log on to ESPN on like a Sunday afternoon or something, they'll have, you know, kind of whatever beer, sport they can pong. find beer pong or like the, they had the, uh, the world stone Stip- skipping championships on not too long ago. That's uh, amazing. right. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that is the kind of thing I want in my sports journalism, right? Like just really oh, arcane cool. out there stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty devastated. I don't know if people saw this, but Stanford just shut down a bunch of sports. Mm. Did you see that news? I didn't, know. That sucks. Uh, it's not quite clear if it's COVID or what, but we're, we're canceling 11 varsity sports. Wow, like forever? Yeah, gone at the end of 2021. And so we've got varsity athletes that, you know, maybe they're sophomores now that mm. come their junior year. The sport that they came to Stanford to play won't be there. That sucks. And one of the sports they're canceling was the sport I did in college, which was rowing. They're canceling rowing? Yeah. Well, for men, they're not canceling women's rowing. They're just canceling men's rowing. (laughs) Pretty devastating. So I was a rower in college at Princeton. And uh, yeah, that's that's painful. But, you know, so that's That's a real one. 
Those that's were, a real paradigm shift. I mean, I wrote in high school, uh, and like you know, there's just so much wrapped into like the idea of the institution um, and yeah. rowing. You know, it's that's wild that they're actually getting rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's it. That's where we are with the sports. Yeah, and the kids. You know, the kids these days soon they won't even know how to how to row an eight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, they can't even. Skull. Yeah. Do you even skull, idiot? Skull anymore? Or do you sweep courtside? Oh man! All right. Well, that that about does it for us this uh, this week. We love you very much, dear listener. Um, we do love you. Yeah, we do. It's like, and it's you know, it's a real love. It's the requited kind, not the unrequited kind. All the way to the end to hear this, and so we love you because you're probably one of our parents. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.